Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On our episode last week, we ended by talking about um, this uh, company called The Maven and what they were doing to Sports Illustrated. Noah, I know you very much enjoyed that segment. I, I'm, I know that the listeners are very surprised that I'm back. Uh, <laughs> I did not, in fact, suffer an aneurysm, uh, thanks to Ryan's speedy closing of that episode. Um, the thing that made Noah so angry, if you weren't listening last week, is uh, the Maven has, uh, in the few short months since taking over Sports Illustrated, laid off half its staff and impl- started to implement a restructuring of the company that will make it significantly worse for the sake of squeezing out a few extra dimes off the carcass of a once-respected brand. Yes, and if you don't believe us, go read any of the stories that, uh, especially, I think, Ryan, you showed me one from the Irish Maven. Oh, gosh. Uh, which is the Notre Dame site. Mm-hmm. And um, as you all know, I teach high school. And at first, I thought there's nothing wrong with this. And then I realized that it wasn't by a high schooler. And then the horror set in. <laughs> the The article we read on air last week, or excerpts from it, was from Deadspin, which is uh, part of this conglomerate now known as G.O. Media Group, formerly Gizmodo Media Group, formerly Gawker Media Group. And also formerly under G.O. Is, uh, was a news and politics website known as Splinter. I say formally because last week Splinter was summarily shut down. It yep. was uh, Execution style. Shut down, we should say. It came as a surprise to those working there because this was a site that was covering news and politics in the buildup to a very, you know, a contentious an election cycle that has been good for news and politics media. Yeah. And uh, so, according to mm-hmm. um, management at G slash O Media Group, right. um, these, so I think Splinter had like seven employees. And they said they were going to move some of them to other divisions within this media group. Mm -hmm. But according to the employees themselves, that is absolutely not the case. They've just been laid off. Right. And they they are unionized, we should note. Uh, They unionized when the company was still Gawker, I believe, and ended up – and the union is now working for severance packages and trying to ensure that these people are given what they deserve for working for the company for – However many years it existed, it was mm-hmm. – Which, first of all, solidarity. Right. Second of all, the other thing we should note is that um, Splinter told its own employees not to report on its own closure, which I think is a is a lesson that – so the company that owns all mm-hmm. of these is called Great Hill Partners. They basically installed all of the executives there, and I think they learned their lesson from what happened at Deadspin where they took it over mm-hmm. and – uh, fired the editor-in-chief, basically. And then there were a bunch of articles from Deadspin reporting on their own management. Mm-hmm. And I think they just didn't expect that, so they weren't right. ready for it. 
But when they did it with Splinter, the uh, I forget what his official title is, but he doesn't deserve it, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, this guy named Paul Maidment sent uh, an internal memo out to all Splinter employees basically saying, if you report on this, you are going to hurt the feelings of the great employees at Splinter, which, you know, laying them off, that doesn't hurt their feelings at all. (laughs) No, that's just normal. Yeah, that's what you should be expecting if you want to get into journalism in the 21st century. (laughs) Now, uh, this company, uh, Great Hill, uh, what's the – is there another – It's Great Hill Partners. Right. Um, They are a private equity firm, and what that means is they supply the money to take over a business that already exists, different from a venture – venture capital firm, which supplies money for up-and-coming businesses or Mm -hmm. startups. And usually what they do after taking over a firm is they saddle with debt and they sell off all its assets. Yes. And they do what they can to squeeze you know, the last few dimes out of a once respected brand. And and let's be clear, you said they supply money. That is incorrect. What they do is they get a bunch of other people to supply the money for that purchase and they debt finance it. So when they actually go into the room and say, here's the check, we now own you, right? They don't even have the money in hand, which is how they're able to saddle the company that they're acquiring with debt, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, it also functions as a tax kickback for them. So from the get-go, this is something that benefits them coming and going. Right. Because they're able to immediately transfer this debt to the company that they now own. Right. I think that that deserves to be teased out a little bit more. So what Noah's describing is a situation where um, I go to buy something and I get a loan for it. And then the second I go to buy a, a like, I don't know, a grocery store right next door, let's say, for example, no reason at right, all. Right, right. Uh, I go totally buy that. Gro- shot, yeah. right? No, definitely not. Uh, I go buy that grocery store and I have like maybe a little bit of money that I've collected from the neighborhood or whatever. Mm-hmm. For example, I go to the bank. The bank gives me a loan for like a billion dollars, whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Standard With my, loan amount. Like maybe 99% <laughs> of the cost right, of the grocery like, store. Like a lot of a, a, a substantial loan. So I go and then I buy the company. Mm-hmm. I buy this grocery store, a private equity firm has this mechanism where they have then said, okay, I have bought you. Now, congratulations, grocery store. All of that debt and that loan I just took out, that's your loan now. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. That is that is insane and to wrap we, your mind around. And the thing is that once that buyout is complete, which I think this is what a leveraged buyout is, right? Because mm-hmm. you get that money from other people. Um, Once that LBO, to use the industry Mm -hmm. term, is complete, what happens next is that the private equity firm then, you know, they they acquire the kind of power over the company that they've just absorbed that you don't see unless you're like – a locality full of non-white people and a fiscal oversight board is appointed to oversee you. Like they acquire full control of who's on the board of directors, the CEO, everything. They acquire full control of staffing decisions, all that sort of selling assets, blah, blah, blah. And in this whole time, they are finding ways to pay themselves money from that company. So it's once you buy the grocery store, Lou, then what happens is that you then make the grocery store pay you for your services, advising it on mm-hmm. how to sell groceries better. Doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you've ever sold a, right. a single head of lettuce in your life before, 
you are now forcing that store to pay you for uh, just you know the 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 benefit of your extensive knowledge of business. Right. Really. It's such a great scam. I love it. It's it's, it's, it's so bald faced. Um, and last year in Splinter, Hamilton Nolan wrote a useful guide to uh, this industry. Effectively, uh, he headline: The Working Person's Guide to the Industry That Might Kill Your Company. Talking about private equity. In most uh, ironic. <laughs> yeah. Not foreshadowing at all. Quoting from the article, in most deals, private equity firms want to minimize the amount of their own money they put in and maximize the amount of borrowed money they use. More debt means greater profits if the value of the company they buy rises. But debt also means greater risk. All of that debt m- that must be paid back means the companies that are suddenly in a very perilous position should anything go wrong. Their financial cushion, their safety net, is now eaten away by payments on the debt that the PE firm used to buy them. Overnight, a financially healthy company becomes one that is living on the edge, not for any benefit for employees or customers, but solely for the financial benefit of the PE firm that bought them. So in other words, there's a company hatching its eggs inside of them. Like we are Mm -hmm. talking about a parasitic relationship here. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Because you get uh, dividend payments from the company. Um, One of the tactics that was discussed in one of the articles Ryan gave us uh, was a – real estate swap thing. We're, sale we're, lease back. Sale lease back. There we go. Yep. Um, where like, okay, I've bought this grocery store, but I need to get more money out of them because uh, that's because all do. I'm doing. That's all I care about is getting as much money as possible. Um, so I'm going to sell the land that the grocery store is off. Mm-hmm. And then now the grocery store isn't going to move. It can't just be like, oops, we don't live here anymore. It's still there. So the grocery store now has to pay lease payments to whoever now owns the land. You own the land. Oh, that's right. What I own the land. What you're doing is you <gasps> bought the land about that from part. the grocery store, and now you're making them pay you rent. Ah, oh, that's so cool. I love this. It's such a good scam. Guys. There's this myth, right, uh, which is a bipartisan myth, which is a myth that I would say most Americans hold very dear in their hearts, which is that, you know, a a competitive economy, a free economy has this kind of dynamism and this kind of, I don't even know, competitive spirit to it, right? That it encourages uh, disruption and creativity and all this stuff. And every time you dig into these financial instruments, every time you actually look at what's actually happening, what you find is that uh, it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or if you're uh, the kind of person that depends on you know the town grocery store to get your food because you're not gonna go to Whole Foods and spend your entire paycheck for like a bag of particularly well picked kale. The it it doesn't matter if you're either of those people. You don't want risk. You absolutely mm-hmm. do not. Any of these billionaires. Uh, any of these people who pretends that they're somehow lords of the universe because they are, uh, you know, risking huge, they're not. And this kind of thing proves it. They put as little of their own money up. I think um, typically between one and 2% of the actual value of these buyouts is put up by the firm. The other 99% is put up by other people who then essentially trust that this PE firm is going to quote unquote do the right thing by which they mean pay them dividends, again, out of, you know, the the parasitically extracted money from the company. And then when they can no longer do that, they just 
set the company adrift to to figure out its course, now saddled with huge amounts of debt payments that they can't get rid of in bankruptcy anymore. Well, no, because there's there's mechanisms even within the bankruptcy process that favor investors and other creditors who like can get in and in on it um, through like prearranged or prepackaged uh, Chapter Eleven agreements. So. Uh, you know, like I can, if I, you know, I've, I've gotten all I can on my grocery store and it's going under and, and I have like, I spent a billion dollars buying it. I'm now $5 billion in debt. Okay, no, the grocery store I, is $5 the, billion sorry, dollars in I'm debt. so sorry. You're right. The grocery store is now $5 billion in debt. Thank you. I keep messing this up. I'm not good at this. Well, uh, I, I think the complexity of it all serves a purpose. It's a, it's it's a right. feature, not a bug. Exactly. You know, what's actually going on, and it prevents exactly. people from actually realizing who these firms are. They right. like mm-hmm. to stay hidden. That's precisely it. Because um, within that debt, you have um, you, the loan payment that you still owe the bank for the purchase. Mm-hmm. You may have the uh, – you owe your – you owe me uh, money on your lease agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you. Oh, by the way, you still have to pay people. You might mm-hmm. have pension agreements or anything mm-hmm. like that. And the, especially the worker things, the pension things, those are things that are the last thing to get paid. Mm-hmm. So you can get your CEO billions of dollars. Like that's what happened with Toys R Us. The the higher up people and the people in the know and kind of have an idea of how these firm firms operate, they get in and they have first dibs at getting their their money paid. Right. And people like the everyday workers, the people who are hurt most by that business closing, they don't get a check at all. There's nothing nope. they can do. Well, and they be- can't even though the the debt can be halved in negotiations through mm-hmm. chapter 11. It's because they're dropping things like paying the workers what they're owed. Right, because the workers are not shareholders. Right. That's part of the, that that's from the get-go, that's part that's baked into the process. If you're the CEO of a company, even now you probably own some stock in it. Yeah, part of your compensation might be in stock options or whatever, or you might simply invest in it. And so you the company is partly responsible to you right. even if they've basically got a gun to your head saying you, you're you not allowed to admit the precarity of the situation that you're in. Yeah. Uh, it, it honestly makes you just simply question whenever anybody, any CEO, any manager anywhere says that a, you know, a company is in danger of going belly up, you should automatically be questioning who's the current ownership, when did they acquire this company, what has this company recently gone through. Mm-hmm. I uh, came across a, an article in the uh, American Prospect titled uh, Saving Free Speech from Private Equity. It was written in 2017 by Robert Kuttner and Hilde Zenger, which is a pen name of somebody who works at a local paper owned by this company, uh, Gatehouse. If, ah. if Gatehouse sounds familiar to our listeners, we mentioned it very briefly at the end of last week's episode. They recently purchased Gannett. Oh, okay. Uh, ah owns, among other papers, the USA Today, the Democrat and Chronicle here in Rochester, the recently unionized Arizona Republic in Congratulations. Phoenix. Congratulations. Now, quoting from the article, I, I, I think this is a useful, what, what it means to have the squeeze put on you by a private equity firm. Zenger's newspaper with a circulation under 10,000 has been pillaged in classic private equity fashion. Its pre-Gatehouse staff has been cut by 70%, and those who remain have not had a raise in almost 10 years. 
The paper had its own in-house production and printing operation and had won design awards, but Gatehouse shut down and sold the press and fired the entire production staff. The paper is now laid out hundreds of miles away in Austin, Texas, Hmm. along with most of Gatehouse's 770 papers. The printing is done in another city at a Gatehouse-owned shop by harried press workers who are under constant pressure to cut costs by reducing quality. Editors must send all the content page by page to the Gatehouse Design Center via a cumbersome, laughably outmoded software interface, and then wait often for hours to see what the pages look like on their computer screens. They are not allowed to speak to the designers, who can be contacted only by email. The designers follow strict rules that make creative layout solutions virtually impossible. Gatehouse wages are so low and working conditions so high-pressured and unpleasant that turnover among layout staff is constant, so mistakes are rampant. Cost-cutting measures at Gatehouse are absurdly draconian, ranging from the fact that editorial staffers don't even get complimentary subscriptions to having to buy their own coffee for the office machine. Next, it will be the toilet paper, says one staff member, only half-joking. I mean, yeah. That's, uh... (laughs) That's a great example of, of this kind of hollowing out. I mean, if you're – this is why, by the way, in case you've ever wondered why USA Today and the DNC and mm-hmm. the Arizona Republic and like half of the newspapers in the country, mm-hmm. their websites and their their publishing frames right. look exactly the same. There you go. Well, well, that was even before the purchase by Gatehouse. Uh, Gannett owns yes. all these companies. Right. This purchase only happened a month or two ago, but still – you know, it's a it's a very centralized process now, which is why uh, what used to be the national news section of the DNC is now just a a one page insert of the USA Say Today's today. front page, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important to know now. It, it's one thing to say, okay. I think sometimes we tend to think that because of the complexity of these instruments, because of how obfuscated they are, because of how much these people are able to kind of operate in secret. It's very difficult to display their effects on people. Uh, you know, you might not read Splinter. Chances are you probably uh, chances are you probably do if you're listening to this, but it's possible you don't. Maybe you don't read Deadspin because you're not interested in sports news, or and you might not read the DNC. Exactly. And <laughs> let's be honest, you probably shouldn't sometimes. But oh, well, I can't. They they keep putting everything behind a paywall. So exactly. So. Part of, I think where I'm going with this is that it's easy to say, okay, I don't. Why do I care about this? And what I would what I would say to that is, um, I don't remember who said this on Twitter, but there are journalists making the point that you can't rely on the New York Times or the Washington Post because democracy dies in darkness mm-hmm. or any of the or the Los Angeles Times or whatever you can't rely on the major league newspapers to be there for workers you can't rely on them to be there for every action you can't rely on them to cover every campaign especially if they're regional or local it doesn't matter what kind of outsized success or influence they may have you need outlets like splinter you need outlets uh, like that's been you need outlets like smaller local and regional newspapers mm-hmm. who with actual staff, with actual capability to put, you know, feet on the ground to cover these stories because oftentimes that's how bigger newspapers end up having to cover them. They are pressured by readership. They're pressured by journal. Their staff is pressured by journalists that they know. Uh, you know, their their sources sort of filter up. 
And the more you centralize the media in this country, you're going to have less of that, number one. And number two, what's left is going to have an editorial viewpoint that, how do I put this, is um, horrifying. Well, well, the point is made in a lot of these stories that the people who now run these newspapers have no background in journalism. Why would they? Right. There's, and, there's no reason for them to. And their commitment is not to journalism or the quality of journalism, but strictly to the bottom line. There's none of the romanticism that you might have once had among newspaper publishers. And there's a narrative that, you know, print media and newspapers and even a lot of websites have fallen victim to the digital revolution. But these forces were not outside of people's control. The print media didn't die on its own. It was killed. Right. right. Gatehouse is not the only company. There's a Alden Capital, which mm-hmm. famously like gutted the Denver Post, among other papers. There's Tronk, which <laughs> wanted to Friends gut the, the, the Los Angeles Times. Um, quoting again from the American Prospect, the private equity formula of hollowing out local papers, the better to extract windfalls, is cynical and deliberate. Between 2012 and 2016, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, all newspapers lost 24% of their workforces. But a sample of 12 papers owned by this firm, the layoff rate was more than half, according to a tabulation collected by journalists who work for the papers. So it's, they ramp up the pace of whatever decline media might have otherwise been seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we'll all believe it. And mm-hmm. especially we'll all believe it if there's no one left to tell you otherwise, mm-hmm. which is part of the problem. Uh, and I think you can draw a straight line from the fact, like, I don't think that Americans have always had such a reflexive worship of the rich. I really don't. I think there's, I mean, the temporarily embarrassed millionaires rhetoric aside, (laughs) I think it used to be a little bit easier to find people willing to admit that uh, the unreachable person who lived in a literal castle in another neighborhood that you can't even get to, you know, was a terrible human being or that they must have done something terrible to get to that point. And now you can't get that. And part of the reason, I'm sure, is because increasingly there's nobody around to tell you what that terrible thing was. And again, they're not, you know, uh, what is it? Back in the day of, you know, Horst and Pulitzer, there were at least competing interests Mm -hmm. that would hopefully produce some actual, you know, journalism. Now all the billionaires are on the same side. They're not fighting each other anymore. They they are the most bipartisan group of people there is. They are in complete solidarity with each other. Right. That is what class solidarity lo- looks like. And and you had made the point earlier that you know at the end of the day it's always the workers who bear the hardest brunt of mm-hmm. this. To say nothing of the like markets impacted by the loss of the reporting you talked about. But uh, quoting again, uh, just last August it purchased another eleven dailies and thirty weekly newspapers from the Morris Publishing Group in Georgia. Its most recent move is to buy the Boston Herald for just four point five million in cash. Announced on the same day, the 170-year-old daily filed for federal bankruptcy protection. Gatehouse's bid was conditioned on voiding all the paper's union contracts and discarding all legacy pension, health, and other obligations to Herald workers. Major layoffs in the newspaper's 120-person newsroom are a certainty. Oh, yeah. And didn't um, – this isn't quite the same as a private equity Mm -hmm. firm, but didn't Sheldon uh, Adelson – by the major newspaper in, in Las, Las Vegas. Vegas, yes, the yeah. Review Journal. You know, the newspaper that was at the time investigating him. Right, and 
he promptly went to work uh, preventing it from doing any real reporting on the stadium deal that brought the Raiders to Las Vegas, exactly. in which Adelson is heavily invested. Which, again, this used to be the thing that we treasured newspapers for doing. Right. This is... This is to the. This is so on the nose that if you tried to make, I I know this is an overused way of putting these things, mm-hmm. but like if you told somebody in the seventies that this is a thing that billionaires are doing mm-hmm. now, they would they would think this was unrealistic. They would think, oh no, no way. They would never, you know, be <laughs> yeah. this obvious about it. And I think what they missed is that once we've essentially given them the power to to do this stuff and we've essentially told them that you know there is in fact no, nothing waiting for you there is no consequence to any of your actions uh not even the the litless one i think that told them all that it was okay to do this mm-hmm. and and the rhetoric around it is that there's no money to be made in these industries these papers but the private equity firms still find a way to turn a profit yeah, yeah. well and because they're not interested in in long-term profit, right? Mm-hmm. They're right. interested in... As, as get in, get out. Yep. Uh, there, there's a tweet that famously said, the business model is buying a respected brand, gutting it, and then cashing in on the people who still think it's a respected brand before they realize. Sucker born every minute. Yeah. We'll be back after this break talking about more of the companies that have killed media in this country. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Lou. Hey, guys. And Noah. Hi, y'all. We talked in the first segment about um, private equity firms and the damage they've done to media, both digitally and print media, local newspapers across the country being gutted by these uh, vultures effectively. Um, and I, I said that you know media has not that print media hasn't died, it's been killed. And there have been uh, multiple killers in that murder sort of like julius caesar i guess Mm -hmm. a lot of 53 stab wounds broad open daylight right plenty of witnesses no one saw a thing the the private equity companies (laughs) are a useful villain for us because really who cares about gatehouse or uh Uh, great Great hill Hill or alden capital or authentic brands Brands group uh they have (laughs) the worst names ever it's like they're just they are on purpose designed to be just like you ignore the name, and then you're like, oh, well. yeah, anyway. Mm-hmm. But local media's death has also come at the hands of companies you probably have heard of, Facebook and Google. Uh, specifically, the two companies have effectively siphoned a great deal of ad revenue that would otherwise be going towards journalism and taken it for themselves despite not producing any journalism of their own. Don't give them ideas. Yeah. Just this past week, uh, Facebook settled a lawsuit for $40 million over um, its video metrics. Uh, Noah, do you know much about this? Uh, so Facebook, I believe, I don't remember who the case, who the plaintiffs were, but it right. was like a class action Something lawsuit on behalf of some advertisers. So, you yeah. know, cheering for injuries here. But basically what they won on mm-hmm. was that Facebook – Faked its video metrics. It told them that videos posted to Facebook had some, I mean, A- astronomical unreal. View, view totals. Yeah, uh, view totals, click-through rates, whatever, whatever, whatever. 
you know, essentially they told him, look at these numbers. These numbers are very good. And that's why you should post on Facebook instead of somewhere else. And these advertisers took them up on it, didn't see those numbers and, at all. And we saw this in the middle of the decade when several digital media companies were pivoting to video, mm. was right. the classic phrase. Because again, Facebook was telling them, if you start posting videos on Facebook, you'll get a lot more engagement, you'll get a lot more click-through, that kind and of thing. And advertisers like video because it's harder to block those ads than just a banner ad along the side of the page. If you mm -hmm. can get a nice autoplay video that starts with an ad, there's your eyeballs and ears right there. Yeah, and who knows how many mistaken clicks you're going to get while people are trying to X out of it desperately. Quickly muting the, yeah. the video. Um, um, right. So they they completely, they made these numbers up, is mm -hmm. is the ultimate truth. They right. they were faking them, and these companies got hosed for, for believing them. And it turns out that every so often, you can still get a company to pay a pittance for false advertising. Yeah. There was um, an article in Slate around the time this lawsuit was filed that sort of uh, details what exactly happened here. Is this uh, going to make me angry? Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> Brace yourself. Uh, the company had been seriously miscalculating multiple key metrics, including average duration of video viewed. The error, Facebook was only counting views longer than three seconds in its average and thus completely ignoring the vast majority of people who were scrolling right past them. Wait, what? They calculated people like the idea that people are getting sustained interest in these videos. Right. And so in order to make it look like that was actually the case, Facebook didn't calculate didn't include in its calculations any of the people who watched for less than three seconds because they were clicking because <clears throat> they didn't care less about a video. Right. Oh my God. So if you Start with just the people who watch for at least three seconds, you get a significantly higher average view duration, which the advertisers love. Yeah, yeah. And Facebook loves because it gets them that advertiser's money. Right. It's it, Again, it comes back down to this. It, people keep talking about, especially companies, tech companies like Facebook and Google, like, you know, they're, they're made up of smart people, intelligent people, you know, they, they depend on, there's this like scientific veneer to everything yeah. they do because they're STEM essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that like, it doesn't matter whether you're old fashioned or you're techie or anywhere in between, you're going to cheat the mm -hmm. moment that you can and yeah. in the ways that you can get away with it. And that's what Facebook was doing. This is no different from a snake oil salesperson. And I think all of this, it, it sort of makes sense that nobody was really watching these videos in the end because I think we're all well-adjusted people. When have you ever wanted to watch a video <laughs> instead of an article? <laughs> uh, really uh, in, the line at, uh, in the line at the grocery store, perhaps, earlier today. Ah, uh, well. Anyway. That, was, that one had a dog in it. I, uh, I could fair. not be helped. The, the Onion, a company that was part of the pivot to video, I'm sure, uh, in 2014 had the headline, Christ, article of video. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, and I should have expected this, was exactly my reaction when I clicked on it and found it was a video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> no, that, that's exactly correct. And I think these companies rely on their reputation to get you to distrust the preponderance of anecdotal evidence right. that tells you that no one is interested in this stuff. Like, you have to, the, the intended audience for this, and 
conspiracy theory warning, oh is adolescents. <laughs> because they are people who are, t- I mean, again, I teach. I see them doing this. They are no, constantly, with it. I know, no, never said that on the show mm-hmm. before. The first time reveal, exclusive on Punching Out. But the, the problem you're having is that they are growing up used to this. Right, like that's what they do all the time. They they can't read any. Uh, most of them, it, it takes them a serious effort to read anything that's remotely long form. Right, yeah. And so when they're already used to this, then this is just going to become part of the background radiation. It's it's not going to matter to them. They're not going to think anything of it the way that we're thinking about it. And so I think that these companies are, for once, which is rare, admittedly, thinking about the long term here. They're they're saying if we plant these seeds now, we can render, uh, you know, we can render future generations essentially ripe for this. And all, all the stuff about Facebook's calculations might seem a little abstract, but know that a whole bunch of companies made hiring and firing decisions based on this supposed data that was completely fictional. Yeah, that like five, six years ago, that was the the biggest news. You saw every media company laying off writers to hire video people. Mm -hmm. And and you've since seen something of the reverse, though the writers, of course, have not come back in the same number. And the video people have gotten laid off just as much. Right. But it wasn't just video people. You had to do your own reporting, do your own recording, do your own editing. Uh, You know, you were the, the one man camera crew. And everything right in producing crew, which was always portrayed as being some kind of like brave badass citizen journalist, right? You know that's what it was supposed to be. The and the vlogger. It it creates. There is this idea now that you're supposed to be constantly training for the jobs of the future. Mm-hmm. You know the the way it's sold to us is that we're training our students for jobs that uh, you know don't exist right now, and ultimately that's a line of. Uh, horse pucky, sold by these companies because what they want is to create this expectation in the minds of people that there will never be such a thing as job stability or security. Right. Uh, I'm simply always going to be living on the edge. I mean, that's what the firms that we're talking about, that's mm-hmm. what they do to companies. And they create that perception that no matter what, your company is always teetering on the edge of absolute right. disaster. They're trying to make sure that that's how we all feel as individuals as well. But I, what's worse is, in this case, Facebook and Google get away with this kind of behavior because they are the almost single point of data collection for everything. Nobody else has this, this uh, access to data like they do. So they can tell you anything, and you're just going to have to believe it. They're too powerful, too influential, too everywhere – Mm-hmm. all-encompassing to to battle. Now, now we mentioned Google and uh, Facebook at the time of this video metric oopsie uh, was <laughs> trying to compete with YouTube as, you know, for people's attention, people's eyeballs. And YouTube, of course, is owned by Google, which is involved in media in this sense in that, uh, quoting from a CBS article that helpfully lays out the case against them, Last year, Google earned $4.7 billion from news, a product it didn't make and for which it didn't pay publishers. The search giant can do this because its size allows it to exercise an enormous level of control over newsrooms and publishers, getting them to present their information for free. Newsrooms can't push back against this because banding together to demand better terms would be a violation of antitrust law. And that's basically the oh, case that's, being that's made amazing, by is what that news is. guilds and publishers across the country. 
So with the reason we <laughs> can't have more quality journalism <laughs> is that that would be a monopoly. Right. But Facebook and Google are fine. They, they can't, as an industry, set prices because that's a cartel. Right, which we are totally opposed to in this whereas, country. Whereas Google is just God. And yes. Th the case made here is that in the last decade, the number of people reading news has increased fivefold to 146 million people a day. And at the same time, we have local medias collapsing. Right. That's mm -hmm. not all just private equity Lo firms. That's yeah. ad revenue going to places that don't yeah. make news and don't have in anything to do with it. In other words, it's, it's, again, a parasitic relationship. Mm -hmm. it's, it, but this is... This is what every capitalist dreams of in their bones because they're not stupid in, in this sense anyway. They don't dream of uh, an existence perpetually defined by risk, uh, by operating on the edge. They want the same thing that we all want, which is stable, safe sources of money that are not going to go away. Or that will provide you enough of a cushion that when they do go away, you don't care anymore. No, no, no. I, I disagree with you, Noah. I think that is baby level capitalists. Mm. I think the uh, advanced We're going for level galaxy brain capitalists. Yeah, galaxy brain capitalists want to create deliberately create instability in the market so that when it crashes, they're the only ones holding all the money. No, no, a hundred percent. But they want to create that instability for other people. Yeah. You know, they want to be the only ones who have any kind of stable income or any kind of safety net. Or crash it all, make $2 trillion. <laughs> Pay Pinkertons. <laughs> there you go. But I think, again, there's been this narrative that you know the internet has killed off local news when, of course, people who get their news from the internet are often getting it from local news sites. They're getting mm -hmm. it from you know the Democrat and Chronicles paywalled website you know, if they turn their ad blocker off and et cetera. But and where and Facebook and Google come in is they're just the ones that they're just the way people find these local news articles now. And, and yeah, they they, they did what all of these companies would love to do, they're which the is middleman. Exactly. You don't. You never want to be the person actually making anything because then mm -hmm. you have to pay the person who makes it. You want to be the middle person because then you get paid just for being there, which is incredible mm -hmm. to me. Uh, the moment that we started monetizing that more than the actual producer of anything, I think it's the moment we went completely off the rails <laughs> with with this stuff. The you are essentially Google and Facebook are essentially information speculators, is what they are. Mm. They they promise you a product that they didn't make, and that they essentially don't have to pay for unless, as you put it, Ryan, they commit an oopsie. <laughs> right. A boo boo. Yeah, but it was only forty million dollar oopsie. Yeah, seriously, which. Is that's a Zuckerberg fraction, finds that in his couch. To say nothing of Zuckerberg's wealth, it's a fraction of the actual damage caused to media right. and people who work in it. You know, a whole lot more than forty million dollars changed hands because of that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but rest assured, there's good news. Uh, Washington oh. Post headline from s September last month: Google Owned by Bezos, right? Democracy dies in darkness. Google and Facebook's latest efforts to save journalism are sparking debate. Oh ah. The heroes are here to save the day. Yes. Lex, the, the real life analog of Lex Luthor is going to fix everything. People who have to do with the problem from space. are here to Thank God. solve God. it. Uh, what would we do without them? <laughs> uh, <No>. Much better <laughs> is what we would do without them. 
Quote, Google said this week it will change its search rater guidelines and its algorithms to better surface original reporting, news originating from a publication and not aggregated from another outlet, to allow it to obtain a higher ranking on its search pages and maintain that ranking for a longer time. That follows Facebook last month saying it would begin offering several major news outlets as much as $3 million a year to license headlines and previews of articles. Wow. So... What Wait, could possibly so is, is go Facebook wrong? just straight up trying now to it, it's it just aggregating them? New, yeah, I mean, yeah. like it's ultimately paying them for like you think these paying news, them for the coverage it might have gotten otherwise if it wasn't for Facebook. I was gonna say, mm-hmm. and you think these newspapers are like, do they think there's gonna be no influence on the coverage that they're gonna receive because of that? Uh, both companies have also pledged $300 million to fund local journalism projects over a three-year period. Yeah, I, I don't hmm. think I trust this money at all. Hmm. Money's going to end up in Elton Capital's hands. Well, even if it doesn't, though, <laughs> yeah. even at its best-case scenario, what you're going to have is that this money goes to these local media sites, and then somehow, you know, it, it doesn't matter how many layers you launder it through. Mm-hmm. The moment that that company wants to, or the moment that a local media site or whatever wants to actually deal with something that, I don't know, uh, Google is in some tangential way involved with through some government contract or whatever, you'll find that the money will dry up pretty damn quick is what's going to happen. Quoting from the article, quote, if they want to have quality content for their users, which they say they want to have, they're going to have to come up with a more broadly sustainable business model for publishers than handing out candy once every in a while, said David Chavern of the News Media Alliance trade group. So, you know. we, we could just expropriate their assets. That would fund a lot of journalism right there. No, just I think saying. you're on to something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All this boils down to like their algorithms, which... Right. They, they've always been right in the past, so oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think never we have to had trust a, them. Yeah, we, uh, you know, who, who better? I, I especially like the uh, uh, support independent journalists. So, like, who's an independent journalist? I, I think in that case, they mean like newspapers, original sources, rather than when those paper stories end up at like HuffPo or right whatever aggregator right. you might think of. Because that to me sounds like a, uh, a dude on his computer writing a blog about how lizard people are obviously controlling Facebook and Google. Uh, Google has said it says it has instructed human raters to prioritize news reports that display a high degree of skilled time and effort. To evaluate <laughs> trustworthiness, raters are told that prestigious <sighs> awards such as the Pulitzer Prize Award or a history of high-quality original reporting are strong evidence of positive reputation. I want access to this entire manual. I want it now. Yeah. And I want to go over it with a fine-tooth comb because somehow I don't – no disrespect to the people they're hiring to do this. Right. But I somehow suspect that there's a lot they're not telling us here. Mm-hmm. You know, Just like yeah. Facebook did with the content moderation kind of deal that we've covered right. on the show before. There is always – these companies would not be doing this if they couldn't derive direct – financial advantage from it because that's not what corporations do. They have one responsibility and that is to increase shareholder value. That is it. That is their only legal responsibility under this system that we live in. So Mm -hmm. if Google and Facebook are doing this, it is because they are going to make money off of it. And we need to be worried about what that means because unfortunately, like we're already getting less and less information about how the world around us is hell. 
And Facebook and Google are clearly now becoming involved in controlling how much we get to be told about that process. We've spent a good 45 minutes now talking about media. I want to take a break here. And when we come back, we'll try to broaden this episode to talk about other industries being hit with very similar processes. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We've been talking in the first couple segments about the companies killing media in this country, Facebook and Google, but also especially in the first segment, private equity. And private equity, as you may know, is not just focused on uh, taking journalism brands and running them into the ground. They're also interested in doing that in other industries. Namely, as Lou, you strongly hinted at earlier. <laughs> no, it was very uh, subtle. No, it was, it was extremely subtle. I have no idea. what. I don't even know what you're about to tell me. Uh, grocery store. <gasps> oh, no. No. Wait, so my example w- was more true to life? Uh, did not seem all that hypothetical. <laughs> it's true. Wait, so before we get started on grocery stores, I do have a question to pose. Okay. Who oh, has boy. killed more industries, millennials or private equity firms? That's not even close. That's private equity firms. <laughs> Uh, not according to the more news, good by industries. The, way. the media that's owned by the private equity firms in the first <laughs> place. I think I just solved the problem. There we go. Anyways, um, um, some of stores. some of our listeners might remember how last year uh, the grocery store chain Tops went bankrupt. You have private equity to thank for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing, writing in uh, American Prospect, uh, Eileen Applebaum and Rosemary Bat explain that quote since. 2015, seven major grocery chains employing more than 125,000 workers have filed for bankruptcy. The media has blamed disruptors, low-cost competitors like Walmart and high-end markets like Whole Foods, now owned by Amazon. But the real disruptors in this industry are the private equity owners who are behind all seven bankruptcies. They have extracted millions from grocery stores in the last five years, funds that could have been used to upgrade stores, enhance products and services, and invest in employee training and higher wages. As with the bankruptcies of common household names like Toys R Us, private equity owners throw companies they own into unsustainable debt in order to capture high returns for themselves and their investors. If the company they have starved of resources goes broke, they've already made their bundle. This is all perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> it's it's really advanced capitalism. It really is. You know, we've talked previously on the show about how capitalism by its nature alienates workers from the labor they do. And this is just the evolved version of that because you have all these, you, a private equity firm goes in, they buy a grocery chain, they or any other business basically, guts it, burns it to the ground, takes their millions and then goes and does it to another industry. The people holding the bag every time and time again are the workers who are too stupid to to uh, go and look for a decent paying job and they're stuck in these these things and it's always the workers' fault. But the the private equity firm that owns that company has no obligation whatsoever to the worker. Mm-hmm. They're they because they don't work for them. Mm-hmm. Even if it, it's it's a weird you relationship. You used to at least 
be able to face your boss in right. the workplace, but mm -hmm. now your boss is somebody who you never see, you never and know. And no one else does either. Yeah. That's you don't the know part. the name of your boss if you're working at a company that is owned under seven different layers of capitalization and right. leveraged buyouts and what have you. And, and your company's name is like some dumb thing like Gatehouse, whatever well, that is. Well, I was going to say, um, Ryan, we were talking about this before we started recording. One of these companies is named Cerberus, and, and they're particularly famous for how secretive they are. Uh, in 2007, their, uh, I guess, CEO, uh, Steve Feinberg, was caught saying to, um, uh, I think it was employees, that if anybody at Cerberus ever got their picture in the paper, they would murder them <laughs> because the jail sentence would be worth protecting the company. And I mean, that's that's the kind of people we're talking about. Also, I do think it's very appropriate that they're called Cerberus, and I think more of them should be named after mythological or fictional monsters mm -hmm. because that is what they are. All they do is, you know, the, the, the terrifying thing about them is that they are industry agnostic. It doesn't matter what they are buying because they don't care. They don't care if it's a newspaper. They don't need experience in any of these fields. No. Oh, of course they don't. They're lords of the universe anyway. But even if they weren't, it, it doesn't matter what they're buying. It just matters that there's money to be had in yeah. it. And, and short-term money too. It, it can't yeah. be something that you actually have to, I don't know, put literally any effort into right. obtaining. Right. And if value is determined by the labor that you put into it, which arguably it is, this is just the weirdest voodoo in the world because the value that they're taking out of these companies isn't even based on the labor. It's just based on weird, weird math. Death calculations. Yep. Yeah, just weird, weird math. Um, to wit, I'm going to use Math the, is bad. You the, heard it here the first, The tops folks. example, <laughs> their local chain, you know, people are familiar with them. The northeastern chain of 170 grocery stores was bought out by Morgan Stanley Private Equity and Gray Cliff Partners in a leveraged buyout <sighs> worth $310 million in 2007. Morgan Stanley pursued a number of LBO leverage buyout add-ons between 2007 and 2012, and then financed the buyout of the company, including all of its debt, by Topps Management in December 2013. By that time, Morgan Stanley had loaded the company with $724 million in debt, more than twice the original purchase price. That included some $377 million in dividends that Morgan Stanley paid to itself and its investors, equal to 55% cent of the total debt that it accrued. Theft. So, yeah, it's just money. Uh, yeah, it's just theft. That's all it, it it's is. It's legalized theft. Mm -hmm. That's what it actually is. Continuing, this does not include advisory fees charged by Morgan Stanley, <laughs> nor the future interest payments that Topps had to shoulder. Oh, my. <clears throat> the, <laughs> the debt overhang left Topps with little wiggle room to reduce prices or resources to invest in store upgrades, new products, and online services needed to be competitive, as it reported itself in the bankruptcy filing. At the time of the bankruptcy, it had 14,800 employees, with 12,000 represented by UFCW and 700 by the Teamsters. The company used the bankruptcy process to substantially reduce the pension benefits for members of both unions by withdrawing from the union's defined benefit pension uh -huh. plans and replacing them with 401k plans. There it is. So they can put even more of their money and mortgage it to basically how these terrible right. companies do. So that then they're complicit in the meat grinder. Right. That for, for scraps. Yeah, that's, that's gross. Why don't private equity firms ever go off after an industry that has a profit margin that would allow it to basically take all the money and run? Like, why doesn't it go after the yacht industry? Well, for crying out because loud. Because all of those dudes they, need their yacht makers. 
but also because those companies don't need private equity. You know, they're That's already true. private equity thrives off of companies that have had a little bit of struggle in recent right. years. They've had a bit of a downturn. Private equity is going to take it. You know, they're going to make it shine like new, scrap all its parts, and you know, you know, remove its inefficiencies. No, it, by which it means the chips its fall where they may. It's a it's an absolute lie, and these companies prey on industries that service people in need, poorer classes, areas where people of color will happen, because this also happens in charter schools. This happens in hospitals, especially rural hospitals. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's something to be gained from people who can't do anything about it, that's when private equity firms will come in and, and save the day. And by save the day, they mean absolutely tear it apart. Mm-hmm. And talking about the tops example again, right? Mm-hmm. Even people who have generally good politics will tell you, oh, no, I wouldn't be caught dead there, you know? It, so there is a class character to well, how these things operate. If you're in a neighborhood that only has a tops, doesn't have a Wegmans, you know, what are you going to do as your local tops gets affected by these changes, by these cuts? You, you can't go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You are stuck in a way at at a store that is obviously getting worse. You know, your ability to make choices are, is very limited by whatever it may be, transportation or just the segregation of neighborhoods. Right. And so what you have is an entire industry, right, that bills itself as the – because even uh, Eileen Applebaum who wrote this mm-hmm. in the Hamilton Nolan article that we were talking yep. about in the first segment, she says, you know, for a small business, private equity can be helpful. No, but uh, you know th- they might have the kind of like real inefficiency that getting bought out and then kind of sent back out might actually somehow help. But the thing with these companies with grocery store chains and so on is that they're huge and they're fairly sophisticated as it is. They don't need the quote unquote help that a private equity firm would be theoretically able to provide, especially not, what was it, $20 million in advisory fees to, what was the advice? Pay us money. That was yeah. it. Yeah. There, there was no actual help or, yeah. or contribution there. Mm-hmm. So there, there is no point for any of these chains to do this. The problem that they're having is that their profit margins are not soaring. There is this constant need in mm-hmm. this like terminal capitalism to not only have like a stable profit, but have it be that, like eye-poppingly huge yeah. year after year. Yeah, it's not enough that you make money and consistently make money. You have to make more money than previous. Yes. Year you, after year after endless year. Endless growth. That's the forever. only and it always it Stamping forces companies face. time and time again it forces companies to extend too far and then have to retract and then go into debt financing by be bought by a cap but, a private equity firm and die. Like that's what this is forcing. But hold on. Did you not notice how Tops was expanding so fast? It wasn't expanding on its own. It was mm-hmm. being made to expand mm-hmm. by the firm that owned it. Yeah. So in a lot of these cases, it's not even the firm. Uh, it's not even the company right. that is subjecting itself to the boom and bust cycle. It is being made to do that so right. that it can be hollowed out all the more efficiently exactly. in the end. So and if you are, let's let's say you, you're, you trust your capitalist. You think your CEO is actually going to make good decisions and try to extend now, the life of the company. this sounds like a hypothetical. Yeah. This is, this, you're an let's, idiot <laughs> if you think that. Let's right. be real clear. Let's, let's pretend that person exists and that they are sane. Um, CEOs are incentivized to go along with this because if, they, if your board of directors, who is 
replaced by your private equity firm that just bought you out, mm-hmm. they're going to fire you if you don't go along with these ideas. And they presumably promise you, you know, if you just kind of go along to get along here, who knows where You'll you might end up. You'll get a golden parachute. Yeah. And you might find another job somewhere else. Uh, the, the guy in charge of, of G slash O media group, whatever, right. he used to be at Ziff Davis, which itself has been bought out. So you become- Wasn't he also a guy from Forbes? I think ages ago, yeah. But it's, you know, these are, they become, if you go along to get along, you become one of these people that can be relied on. You become a, shall we say, a made man for the firm that has bought you out. But I think we're all kind of missing the force for one very particular tree here, which we probably don't have a lot of time to talk about. But ultimately what they are doing is they are ripping apart what is left of protected labor. That is the ultimate goal of all of this, you know, whether it's media, whether it's grocery stores, what they look for is places where there's going to be union labor, there's going to be people who are actually in some degree empowered to fight for their rights. And that's what they're going to target. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at that, rural hospitals, you have unionized nurses, charter schools replacing public schools, you used to have unionized teachers, grocery stores, the most unionized form of retail labor. You look at um, media, which was beginning to unionize, that was Mm -hmm. a whole wave of that. And and Gawker had a large role in yeah. starting it. And there you go. Yeah. That, so it had to be defeated. Mm-hmm. It had to be. Because otherwise the narrative might become that, you know, employees who have rights and understand them might get, I don't know, uh, the word uppity comes to mind. Mm. And just on the subject of unions, this is a total aside, but we are in like week five now of the uh, UAW strike, mm-hmm. which we talked about a few episodes back. So continued solidarity with those striking workers. Damn right. Um, it, I should note um, private equity. This, if you have a long enough memory, this was uh, Mitt Romney's line of work uh, before yes. entering politics. Uh, this was a key issue in the 2012 election, actually. And, and let's remember that this is the man who said things like corporations are people, my friend, and yeah. I like to fire people. I think it's worth noting that in that election, uh, he ran basically on his record in business, and people didn't like that. You know, People <laughs> instinctively get, I think, that this stuff sucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's bad. I mean, too many people like that, to yeah. be honest, as yes, it is. He, he, did, he won like 46%. Yeah. And we should be clear that this is a bipartisan thing because one of the companies profiled in this grocery store chain article is yes. UKPA, UKIPA, I don't care, uh, companies <laughs> uh, whose founder, Ronald Burkle, who made his fortune doing this grocery store chain hoopla, <laughs> is a major donor to the Democratic Party right. and a close personal friend of the Clinton family. So you have this problem where on both sides you have these people who theoretically have some kind of – I forget where it was noted, but there was an article that pointed out that there are more hundred millionaires in private equity than in basically finance and and Hmm. all these other industries that you would expect to produce hundred millionaires. I I think that if anything, it, it makes the organized crime simile more apt. Because these are people that you don't know what the hell they do. If if you live in their town or whatever, you don't know who they work for. You just know that they, you know, same as you, they put on their pants, they put on their tie, they get in the car and they go to work and then they come home and I don't know what they do. Cocaine probably. But, <laughs> you know, for the most part, they don't – you have no idea who these people are. And they just operate on their own completely separate from what you or I would call like quote-unquote the economy. Right. There's an abstraction and a purposeful mm-hmm. obfuscation, as we mentioned before, that 
serves their interests very well. They don't like being known about and to a lot of extent. Because they know what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, that's that's what it ultimately comes down to is they know it's wrong. They know it's immoral. Um, it's only through their constant donations to political people that it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. We hope that this episode has helped shed some light on this industry that I, I think a lot of people know nothing about, ourselves included, until like three days ago. Probably. <laughs> yeah, True. Unfortunately. Um, for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I'm Noah. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.